excited to welcome you to Thought Leaders in Law and Business, presented by law firm Hodgson Russ, in partnership with the Business Journals. In this mini-series, John Tebow, publisher of Buffalo Business First, sits down with Hodgson Russ attorneys to get their take on some of the nation's hottest issues and how they affect our communities. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Sagan, partner in media and First Amendment practice leader at Hodgson Russ. And we're going to discuss both media platforms, the liability shield, as well as some aspects of prominent defamation cases that have popped up in the headlines both recently and some in, in recent history. A little bit about Aaron's credentials before we get started. He's the leader of the firm's media and First Amendment practice area, helping clients navigate issues such as defamation, licensing, press relations, and related issues, including New York's open meetings law and freedom of information law. He draws from a wealth of media experience, having spent 13 years as an investigative television reporter in Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Wilmington, North Carolina, before becoming a lawyer. And so, Aaron, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think that's a really, really interesting place to start is your experience. Uh, in all my years, I don't think I've connected with anyone who went from my side of the desk being journalism to lawyer. Was this a planned path? How did this happen? I sort of stumbled into it. Um, and I think, you know, what everybody now calls the Great Recession in the late 2000s sort of nudged me into a career path I had always thought about, but never really had the wherewithal or the chutzpah to just stop <laughs> what I was doing, right, and to try that. But, you know, I was doing okay, you know, fairly well in the media business. And I remember, you know, like the Lehman Brothers is imploded, the stock market's crashing. And I shared an office at a great Hearst station in Pittsburgh with a couple of terrific investigative reporters. And I remember sort of looking at them and talking to them, and they were older than I was, and all of us sort of wondering, are there going to be fewer of us in six months because of what was happening around us? And I remember thinking, you know, here's some guys who are in their 40s at the time I was in my late 20s, and, you know, they've got families, and, you know, what are they going to do? And I remember thinking, I don't really ever want to be in that position, and the media business was already in great flux, right, at the time. And so I asked myself, well, if I'm not going to do this forever, what do I want to do? Yep. And this was it, being a lawyer. Once I thought about it and thought it through, and the nice thing is that I get to use a lot of the skills, right, that I developed writing, presenting, thinking, distilling, and translate those into the law. There was just, you know, like three years of school. <laughs> so I was going to ask you that. Do you continue with the journalism? Or are you doing law school at, at nights? What was the path and how long did that take to get there? So what I did was I had uh, previously, before I was in Pittsburgh, worked at Channel 2 in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. And uh, you may or may not remember Stefan Mihailu, Scott Brown, the late Scott Brown, and I were like the three original Redcoats at Channel 2 in the, yeah. in the 2000s that arose during the Joel Giambra budget crisis in Erie County. And that was going well. And I had moved up to Pittsburgh, but I had decided I was going to go back to law school. And my wife was from Buffalo. So I moved back to Buffalo. 
I went back to channel two. They took me back. It was probably about a two minute conversation. <laughs> uh, I'd like to come back. Sure. Yeah. And became a resident, lived in New York for a year. And then they allowed me to work part-time all the way through law school, which Fantastic. was awesome because they didn't have night school at University of Buffalo Law School. They used to oh, a long time ago, but they had got rid of that. So it was a daytime program. And the news director at the time, Jeff Woodard, asked me, he said, when do you want to work? We'll take you whenever you can. And so I ended up working second shift, which is like, you know, 2.30 to through the 11 o'clock news. I, I did it on mm -hmm. Fridays and I did it on Sundays. And then I picked up some, you know, some other days here and there. And you can imagine if you're like a student and I was a law student, you're not terribly productive on a Friday afternoon <laughs> and evening and and nor was I all that productive on a Sunday afternoon and evening so the, the schedule was perfect those were two days with very high viewership anyway at channel two and it helped put me through law school and I was busy I mean I just worked nonstop. I right. did a lot of stuff in school I wouldn't trade any of it for anything because it allowed me to continue to build relationships that I use today you know as a lawyer I was going to say, I mean, congrats to you on what must have been a hectic schedule to get through it, but your ability in your second career to pair what you had done before with your loves and expertise, both new and old, it's a wonderful combination. So congrats. And why don't we tap into some of that expertise now? Number one topic that we really wanted to focus on today was social media platforms and the liability shield. You had talked a little bit when we connected before this about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. For those not in the know, maybe you could talk a little bit about that, what it says, what it means, and what the benefits and some of the negatives are to this as well. Sure. So it is one of the most frequently cited and complained about uh, statutes now in, in Washington, D.C., ironically, from both parties. Both parties hate it, but for totally different reasons. <laughs> both parties <laughs> want to fix it, but for totally different reasons, which I'll get into. It's called the Communications Decency Act. It was established in the 1990s, and this was the idea and the thinking. You know, this was the advent of the internet, and this is back when programs, I think you would call them, like Prodigy, if you remember, you know, way back when, were in their infancy. And Congress, and I think very forward-looking members of Congress, said, we don't want to cripple this new platform, this new level of innovation with defamation suits. If they have these websites which allow people to post statements of fact or opinion, right? And, you know, they review, they would, I think Prodigy had like reviews for restaurants and things like that on there. Right. And the idea was, well, if somebody can post a review, if somebody goes down the street and eats at the restaurant and posts a very negative review, X, Y, and Z happened to me, and the restaurateur doesn't like it and wants to sue him for defamation, these websites or these platforms in their infancy couldn't afford to fend off a lawsuit, right? So this was really meant early stages to help with the growth and adaptation of the internet. Exactly. And so think about what we have now, 26, 27 years later, you've got Google, Yelp, you know, you name it, Facebook, which allow people to interactively post messages. And the idea was, well, we think those messages, comments, critiques, what have you, are truly those of the person posting it not of the medium 
that is right. simply creating a, you know, in, in the old days, it would be like a bulletin board, right? In the college hall where you take a um, pen and you, you know, you put it up yep. there. The thumbtack. thumbtack. That's what they had sort of equated themselves to. And there was a, a belief among Congress that we wanted a proliferation of innovation in this sphere. So the people in Washington did the following. They said, so long as it's a website where you're not moderating the comments, so long as it's interactive, you know, like Facebook, where somebody's just posting them, you are not responsible for the content, period. Can't be sued for, for defamation. There are some exceptions in the law, you know, for sex trafficking and things like that. But for the most part, they got liability. And this has sort of evolved in a very weird, but I suppose predictable direction in the last five or 10 years. And I'll tell you what I mean. You have people posting on these platforms, including YouTube from time to time, content that could be very dangerous. And by that, you know, the cases that get the most attention are, you know, ones where they believe they're ISIS recruiting videos or things like that, uh, terrorism, right? Or right. teaching people how to do things. And, you know, for the most part, a lot of the platforms do a good job of flagging these things and removing them. But there is a period of time with which they're up there. Sometimes they're not caught. And people will sue and say, well, the posting of this material contributed to some type of attack or something bad that happened and we want it down and the courts say, well, sorry, it's exempt under the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. And here's where the problems and the disputes between the political parties have arisen. One political party wants the platforms, and this has come up a lot with Twitter, right? Sure. Elon Musk taking it over. One party is saying, you need to do a better job removing irresponsible content, right? The content should be removed because you're peddling, and I'm putting up quotes here because people believe different things, but there's peddling theories about uh, election fraud from the 2020 election. And the left believes it should be moderated more aggressively. So they want changes and they want removal of liability if, if it's not moderated more aggressively. And then you look at it from the perspective of the right, okay? <laughs> They think that many of the platforms are more aggressive in removing content that tends to skew conservative. Correct. Right. And so they want, and again, when I say what they want, I'm sort of trying to, in the best possible light, articulate their position. But I think they think they're asking for, we want this to be like Descartes. We want this to be the open marketplace of ideas. Let it all in. I think there's a bias here. And so this moderating, this removal is skewed against conservatives. And so we want to amend the statute for that reason. So it, the political spectrum has become like a circle yep. where they're both meeting, both parties. They want it changed, but for totally different, different reasons. reasons. So let me ask you a question. When you talk about one side wanting more moderation, if that were to happen, would that not remove the liability clause with regard to the way that Section 230 has it right now, because my understanding is that is for content that right now is unmoderated. Does that open a whole new can of worms? It opens, I think, ultimately a constitutional can of worms. And here's what I mean by that. They can amend the statute in any way they want, right? They can give protections for example, to moderated websites if you do X, Y, and Z. But then you get into such a sticky area 
right? Where the First Amendment alarm bells are going off. It's like, sure. okay, well, Congress shall make no law. Right? Uh, <laughs> and so here we go. Um, they're, they're, they're making a law that's arguably abridging speech. And look, when you have human beings making determinations about what is correct or incorrect, right or wrong, what the standard should be, uh, it is going to be at least a little bit messy and probably imprecise. And you have the government regulating speech. I think any attempt to regulate anything that is posted on there based on its content is running into dangerous territory. And you know, there was a Supreme Court decision that arose from Arizona about signs, you know, like yard signs and, and political signs. And this is like a perfect example of regulating content. I think a community wanted to ban political signs certain times a year in the front sure. yard. I mean, there's a million reasonable rationales to do it. And the position of the community in Arizona was, we're not picking which political signs we're going to be. And this is content neutral. You hear those words sometimes in the First Amendment context. This is content neutral. We're only going to ban political signs. It doesn't matter if they're left, right, up, down, you know, front, center. But the Supreme Court said, no, it can't just be content neutral. You're regulating them based on content, their content, period. And that's enough. Now, certain types of speech the Supreme Court has said over the years can be regulated and treated a little bit differently, like commercial speech. There's a different level of scrutiny for that. Things that are like lewd, there's certain jurisprudence that allows the regulation of that. But just political speech and regulating that based on the content is fraught with peril for the government. And so the question you asked is exactly the right one. Yeah. Which is, well, if you allow them to sort of get in there and moderate, don't you lose the liability or the liability shield? And, well, they could try to to do both, but then you literally have the government making a law, arguably abridging the freedom of speech. So let me ask you a question as we kind of wrap this topic up a little bit. Where do you see it going? Is it going to be more of just, you know, kind of the government sitting on its hands and is things going to get worse before they get better? Any insider behind the scenes thoughts or process that you know of that you can share with us? I think this is just a shot in the dark. I think that the parties will continue to complain. And I think that when you have one party control in Washington, there is going to be attempts to legislate it in a manner that they see fit. I think both parties are going to try to remove the liability shield and we'll see if they can overcome the lobbying <laughs> of mm -hmm. these now, not these startup uh, no. internet companies, right? These powerhouses. They're powerhouses. So I think there will be attempts, but I don't think that you'll ever get a bipartisan path on this. I think when you have one party controlling it, they're going to try to ram through something that their constituency will prefer. And then we'll see two things. We'll see whether the lobbying power of these companies can thwart it or defeat it, you know, or we'll see if the law that they pass is ultimately constitutional. If they just strip them of the liability shield, I think that that would probably work, but that doesn't really solve the political problems 
And they're bigger than political problems. I'm just classifying them. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me, something really interesting happened to me that I noticed for the first time when we were passing through the legislation for the debt ceiling. For the first time in, I can't even remember, it wasn't the far left or the far right that pushed this to happen. It was basically kind of the middle that got together on this and made this happen. And who knows, uh, it certainly seems that politically it's been the left and the right that have, you know, the left is in charge, now the right's in charge and we're flipping things around. If the middle were to come into power at one point and truly work in a bipartisan way, how do you think things start to shape out there? I mean, not everyone's going to win and not everyone lose, which honestly to me is the sign of a good compromise or a good negotiation. You win a little bit, you lose a bit. What does the middle on this topic look like if you don't have uh, one side that's in power? I'm going to give you a very odd and probably unsatisfying answer to that question. <laughs> I think if the middle came together to address it, it would largely look the same. <laughs> they would probably keep it, keep it the way it is because it encourages the platforms to patrol their websites without being interactive with the post, in which case they would be posting, right? It does that and it provides them liability, which I think is sort of consistent with what I think those of us who, who are or were in the media believe to be needed, which is again, that sort of open marketplace of ideas. And, and you believe and hope that the marketplace will sort out the bad ideas from the good ones. And uh, we just have to tolerate idiots along the way. And then hoping that these platforms through maybe bludgeoning from Congress <laughs> sort of do the right thing without going too far. So I, I actually think that the middle would largely leave it intact. That is quo. Really interesting. Before we jump into uh, to some of the prominent defamation cases, any closing thoughts that you have in this area of the Communications Decency Act that you want to share with us? I think that if there were a repeal on the liability shield, Facebook in particular, but probably any comparable social media platform, will look nothing like it does today. Interesting. Right. Because if you can get sued for something that some putts, you know, uh, <laughs> posts, you know, which is just like that, you know what? Yeah. Nuts. Um, you can't let people post anything. I mean, what are you going to go on Facebook to see somebody's birthday? And I suppose it's got to be like purely opinion. But even opinion and fact aren't always clear cut when you read the case law about it. There's some, you know, there's some more technical facets. I just don't think we would see anything that we see now. I think it would be very difficult for people to communicate things other than pleasantries if you remove the shield. But I could be wrong. It would be very interesting. John's conversation with Aaron Sakin continues in part two. Thanks for downloading Thought Leaders in Law and Business. Listen to new episodes bi-weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, visit bizjournals.com Hodgson Russ Thought Leaders. This podcast does not provide legal advice.